Narrative structure right from the start is top of mind. And this piece just has this sort of incredible emotional trajectory where you're always kind of ramping it up a little bit. She put her arm in, in my arm like this and I said to her, you know what, Ralph, I feel like the proudest man in the world right now. I'm walking up Grattan Street with my daughter. A good piece of work is written once, a great piece of work is written five times. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. I'm a journalist and a podcast host. I host a show called Days Like These, a narrative class from the ABC. Before that show, I was the host and creator of Schwartz Media's 7am podcast. And today I'm going to give you my version of a masterclass on narrative structure. Hello and welcome to season two of the Masterclass podcast. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach audio journalism and podcasting at the University of Melbourne. Every episode, we're going to have a master of podcasting talking about one aspect of the craft. This week, we're talking about narrative structure and we're talking to Elizabeth Kulas. She's a journalist at the ABC who hosts Days Like These, a podcast that every episode tells one person's story as they go through something wild. I started by asking Elizabeth how much she thought about narrative structure even before she started interviewing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right, pretty much right from the beginning of thinking about the story, I'm thinking about how I would tell it. And I think especially when I was starting out in this work, the structure is part of even thinking, are there legs in this story for the length of time that I might be reporting on it because, you know, you might do a three-minute news piece and it might be an amazing story that goes for three minutes on a bulletin or it might be a 35-minute piece. So, you know, structurally, you're already thinking, well, if I've only got eight minutes, then I might only have time for one scene and, you know, this other thing. But if it's 25 minutes, I might have time for three different scenes. So right from the start, structure's like going to be central to what I'm thinking about. But the other thing is that narrative structure helps you figure out really, really quickly what parts you're going to need or whether you're going to have enough or not to tell the story that you want to tell. So I'm right away thinking, what are the elements I have to work with with this story? Uh, once I feel like it's got kind of the, the amount of material I need to tell, say at the moment the show I work on, the stories are about 20 to 25 minutes. So when I'm confident that it's got enough material to be an episode for that show, I'm right away thinking, do I have archival material? Is everybody I, I want to talk to available? Is there, you know, music related to the piece? Uh, is there historical material? Are there other things I can pull on? And you want to think about that right from the start because if you've got a treasure trove of archival material, that's going to be at the centre of what you're thinking about doing. So narrative structure right from the start is top of mind for me. And the other thing is the show I work on now, it's so character-driven. So I am looking for people who've been through something much bigger that talks about something much bigger, but that their individual experience or the two of them usually kind of what can that tell me about a bigger story, a bigger theme, a bigger like thing that's going on in the world right now. And I'm right away thinking, who is that person or who are those two people and what role do each of them play in the story that I want to tell? And the only way I can think about that is by putting narrative structure right at the top of what I'm thinking about. So, yeah, I'm always thinking, what is that character going to do? Are they the person searching? Are they the person with the answers? What's the thing that's driving them? What do they want to know? What motivates them? And so narrative structure helps me figure out precisely from the beginning, 
if not the answer, who I need to go to to kind of do the other parts of that story. So when you kind of have your dream narrative structure in place and you go to interview people, how do you make it work? How much of the pre-interviewing do you do and how much do you kind of hold so that you can get these sort of reveal moments on tape fresh? That's such a good question because it's hard. I sometimes get a bit of support from a researcher on this show, but a lot of the time I'm doing my own research and pre-interviews. And I usually want just enough information to be confident that I can tell this story for this show. And then I basically have to stop people and hang up the phone um, politely. But like a great talker will want to tell you the story then and there on the phone. And the sort of sad and difficult reality is that the first telling only happens once and there's something like gold dust around the first time that someone tells you. And, you know, we're the journalists, right? We're the reporters. The average person, if they tell me tonight on the phone and then we book in an interview for Monday next week, when I meet them again, the vast majority of people are going to be like, you know, like I told you last week, uh, I, you know, yada, yada, yada. And we just want to stop that because we work with the raw material of people telling us their stories. We want to avoid that as much as possible because them stumbling to tell us and find the right words that first time can't, it's so difficult to be replaced. But yeah, the principle applies to getting the pre-interview. I think you want to go with a couple of questions to understand like the plot and the, the factual elements, but I never want to get into reflection with someone on the phone because I need the tape. So if someone is describing a difficult experience to me and then I ask them, how did that make you feel or how did you deal with that afterwards or how did you know that you hadn't worked through that experience or whatever the case may be, I never get that response in the same way the second time. So I have to hold all of the questions where I'm asking for someone to reflect on an experience and the emotional kind of element of that experience that has to happen like the one time. So I'd never ask anything about that on the phone. So let, I mean, let's talk about a specific example. Let's talk about that episode of Days Like These called The Search for T5, because it's just such a brilliant example of narrative structure. So it's the search of this one woman, Narelle Grek, uh, who found out when she was a teenager that she'd been conceived using a sperm donor. And so she set off on this search for her biological father. And this piece just has this sort of in incredible emotional trajectory where you're always kind of ramping it up a little bit. Let me see if I can play the tape for the moment where she meets her father and her brother for the first time. When I saw her coming out of the car, in my heart, like, there was this switch, the parental love switch, bang, it came on straight away. I just felt this overwhelming sense of protective, total love for it, you know, just parental love, the purest form of love you can have. I, I really just thought, yes, daughter. It was almost as if though I'd gone back in time and I was holding her in my arms, and yet here she was standing in front of me, fully formed, and yet I still I had that same feeling of love to her as if I would, I'd just held her for the first time. Ray and his wife Susie make tea and share some family albums with her. A little while later, Ray's son Zach arrives. When Zach uh, came in, he looked at her and he goes, Hello, big sister. Straight away, and straight away, the two of them had this rapport 
as if they'd been living forever, you know, as a brother and sister. They were so relaxed in each other's company, it was beautiful. I mean, and I thought, you know, hello, this is exactly the sort of daughter I'd, I'd want to have. Anybody would be proud to have a daughter like this, obviously. So, and, and I'm sitting there looking at the both of them, so proud and so happy. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was a, a sublimely on a beautiful experience on so many levels. That's just such a beautiful moment. And I remember, though, the first time I was listening and I was like, when you went from the meeting to having a cup of tea, I was like, what's going on? Suddenly the emotional intensity is kind of dialed back and then it's ramped up all over again. When the brother enters, I mean, how did you, you know, how did you figure out how to get these moments and how to use them? Honestly, in the first place, just back to your original question about where does structure fit in and the reason why it's there right from the beginning. This is a well-told thing and, and a lot of people in the US working in this speak about this a lot, but thinking about your dream tape, you know, like your imagined, not perfect ideal, but like what you would dream of in your greatest moment and what, what, what could someone say to kind of illustrate something significant in a way I hadn't heard before. And I kind of do that when I'm right at the beginning of a story sketching out what my dream version of it would be. Obviously, we're still always beholden to like the truth of the actual story and the rigor of, of what like a fact but there is a way of dreaming out what parts of the story and how they would unfold I just do I'm just doing it in dot points um as I go when I'm just long before I've done an interview like just as I'm very much initially thinking about the story and what happens in that kind of two things happen for me in that one is I figure out where the really sticky parts of the story are. What, 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 what's going to be the connective tissue to like get the material down? And what are the moments where I really want to sit with the story? And what are the moments that the person I'm interviewing can do in a way I could never do? That's emotional reflection and a scene like that where they describe an experience. I can never, ever get close to doing that with my writing. I have to think about how best to get that tape because there's no replacement for it. And when I've dreamed about what that ideal tape might be, I, can, I often find I can work back to the sorts of questions that are going to get me uh, in a place where that person may give me that tape. It doesn't always work, don't get me wrong. It's not an exact science. But I knew right away that that was going to be a kind of pivotal moment because we'd occupied this unknowing position with Narelle for about 15 minutes by that point. We, we know she's searching for him. She doesn't know where he is. And so it's a huge moment when they actually connect. And I, I got the chance to interview Ray in person for that between lockdowns. And I'm always wondering when I'm in a scene like that, can I visualise from the tape he's given me sitting there and then what actually happened? So I'm asking, you know, what were you wearing? What kind of day was it? Like anything that'll let me, until I can actually see the visual in my head, I don't have it. Those scenes help you to move the story along and make it feel very real. And they, they give you propulsion as well. So you buy yourself time to use scripting and things like that around it because that thing is so powerful and, and visual. And Ira Glass talks about this too, but the two things we have are plot and action, plot, action, stuff that happens, and then reflection of what that means to somebody or to the people involved. When we're talking about plot and action, the very best way we can get through that usually is with scenes, right? Someone telling us an experience they had and illustrating it visually. And those things propel a story in the way that scripting or voiceover from any reporter just can't replace. So I'm really thinking about a dream scenario and then I'm wondering what questions will get me there to ask someone enough tape. 
and I'm always asking myself, is there a visual? For this piece, the massive reveal, it turns out, wasn't even the meeting with Narelle's father. But, you know, it's only halfway through when you listen to the piece that you find out that the main character, Narelle, is no longer alive. And I'll play the moment that we, the audience, hear that, because it's also an incredibly powerful moment. Within a few weeks, Narelle's health worsens and she goes back into hospital. So Ray, he starts getting the train to see her every other day. And on one of these visits, the two of them decide to escape the hospital for a few hours and go to lunch at a cafe nearby. She put her arm in, in my arm like this and I said to her, you know what, Rel, I feel like the proudest man in the world right now. I'm walking up Grattan Street with my daughter. She just had such a beautiful look on her face at the time and, yeah, it was a good afternoon. I mean, every moment I spent with her was beautiful. It was just a magic moment. But there were so few of them. March 26th, me and Susie were walking our dog at the time, just not far from here. And my phone buzzed. I picked it up and it was her sister telling me that Rel had passed away. So from February 11th to March 26th, I barely had, you know, less than six weeks that I knew her. That was it. So, I mean, that decision to sort of spring that so suddenly on the audience, how did you kind of make that decision? Because, you know, as a listener, it's, it just takes you aback. It's so sudden. You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Um, maybe, so the backstory to, to making this story is that I'd sort of made it twice in my head before we landed on the version that we made. So I found the story reading old articles from about six or seven years ago and they they featured Ray. Ray was in them. Narelle had already passed away at that point and there was this little dangling piece of information, like a little loose thread at the end of a written piece. You know, Narelle had done all this work and now the law was about to change. And by the way, when the law changed to let people who were born through anonymous sperm donation contact their donors, donors would also be able to reach out to young people and Ray was thinking about it and it was sort of hidden at the bottom of this article and I I was like hold on wait a second so the government can reach out to people in their 30s and 40s and tell them that their biological father isn't their donor that there's another person in the picture like that blew my mind and so I thought like I've got to reach out to Ray and find out like a if that even ended up being legal like because it was at that point hypothetical and b if he if he did it so I contacted him and he said, yeah, I've, I've actually done it four times. I've got seven other offspring that I could reach out to and I'm in the process of doing it. He sort of talked me through kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what had happened. And my initial dream story was to find someone who in the last year or two of that law being changed had got a call from somebody one day to say, you know, are you sitting down? the person that you thought was your biological father is somebody else and they want to get in touch with you. My imagination was kind of like blown by somebody in my city in, in my in the midst feel, having that experience. So I spent like three months trying to reach out to one of the four people who I knew that had happened to with Ray. Um, and I contacted Varta and they act as an intermediary, but nobody in that position wanted to speak to me. Understandably, they're still likely digesting such a huge experience. 
And then I wondered if I could tell the story just with Ray. And um, I thought on that for about a minute and then I thought, no way, I, I can't tell the story without including the donor-conceived person at the centre of it or somebody who's connected to Ray in that way. It felt incomplete without speaking to um, somebody who was born through the, um, the donations that Ray had made. And that was when I thought about potentially reverse engineering the story and having Narelle be the centre and on her quest. And the closer I looked at the work she had done, the amount of tenacity and activism and passion she brought to that work, and for many years not knowing if it would pay off, felt to me like itself an amazing story, but also that it would become a story about her meeting Ray, his loss of her, and then the very law that she had changed, enabling him to meet other people. And they're sort of like the three acts of the story. So pacing those out, Louisa, was kind of part of thinking about I had to give Narelle real depth and spend time with her to feel her loss. And I also decided that I wanted the audience to experience, if I could, the sense of kind of her searching without having it resolved from the beginning. Yeah, it's so interesting that you talk about those um, the three act structure. Do you have any kind of storytelling structure that you fall back on? I mean, how do you go about that process of finding your story and kind of lining it up and getting it in the right shape? They're useful to think about. You know, another one is like the E structure, where you start a story kind of in the middle of the action. Like Hollywood movies do this a lot. You know, like the first scene is someone on a plane, and then within three minutes they're hanging off the wing somewhere. You know, and then you rewind two weeks for like how you got to that point, and then you kind of return to that high point, understanding the backstory. They're useful. I'm like the the more you do this, the more you see those repeated. You build a kind of an archive in your head of like different structures that might work. But more than anything, I think you know the things that drew you to that in the first place. Sometimes it's worth writing those things down when you first fall in love with the story. You know, how do people respond when you're pitching it to a friend or to a um, to an editor or to a colleague or whoever? What are the things that they think are so are super interesting about the story? And one of the cruel challenges of this work can be that you can have all of the material in the piece and it can all be there and you're like, I said that. But unless you've structured your piece well enough to let those things stand out, a listener can easily miss them. But yes, I don't think imposing structures works. I think it's about thinking, when do I want characters to come on stage? Why are they there? And do I have to pull punches or like, do I have to withhold something until the right moment? Or is what is interesting how they meet? Um, Whereas that was sort of part of it, but not the highlight for me was the fact that she does actually even find him in the first place. I heard that you actually write down your structure. You do a kind of visualisation of high and low points. Is that is that right? Talk us through that. Yeah, you know, something I meant to highlight at the beginning is there's sort of two structures that go on, right? There's like the narrative structure for the whole story. And then I'm sketching up a loose structure of how my interview with someone is going to run. And a big development for me in how I used to prep for interviews is I used to write down every question I had for somebody. Now I really only kind of go in with maybe five points in my head. I'm thinking, okay, I need to know like usually in chronological order what happened and I'm asking someone to reflect about what those things meant after they've happened in the interview. And that structure is completely different, obviously, to the narrative structure. It's like it's out of that narrative structure. It's just a running sheet for how this interview is going to go. And because I'm usually asking someone to tell me how something made them feel or what that experience was like for them, 
I want to kind of interview them roughly in chronological order because I want them to go emotionally with me to the places which they went through in the story. And if I'm jumping all over the place, I'm kind of like, geez, that must have been very difficult. By the way, how was that birthday party? Like, you know, I've got to be with them in all of the emotional points, the highs and the lows. And so usually I'm moving through a story chronologically. And if I know I'm building a scene in the sketchups that you're talking about, Louisa, like if I know that meeting in the driveway at Ray's house, if I know that's going to be a centrepiece of the story, which I did before the interview, I knew that I had to sit there for a long time in the interview until I could visualise what it is that had actually happened. And um, there's, you know, this kind of saying, you haven't really heard everything someone has to say until you ask the same question three times. In an interview, I'll rephrase a question or go back or um, ask for more detail, like usually twice or three times for a key moment. I don't ask once and move on. Um, I might get a very clipped answer from somebody and I want, a, I need a very detailed one. So I'll just say, oh, can we just sit there for a minute longer? Like, um, do you remember what car Narelle came in? Um, how are you feeling that day? Were you nervous or were you excited by that point because you'd spoken on the phone? Like I'm just asking as many questions as I can until I feel I've got the emotional tenor and a visual of what happened. The Planet Money reporter, or ex-Planet Money reporter, but very brilliant reporter, Karen Duffin, she calls this figuring out whether to sit, skim or skip a part of the story. And I knew I wanted to sit there, but I needed to skim another section because we were running out of time or it was we were going to have less time. And other parts of the story are usually long before that point decided I'm going to skip or I might ask in a kind of cursory way. That's all work I've done usually about 80 to 90% of the way before I've turned on a recorder or made any kind of interview question. So interesting. I want to um, ask you really briefly, do you have like two top tips for us then um, about narrative structure? I was thinking about this last night and I was like, these are the best tips that I can. But um, one is, have you talked about kind of hosting and editing or a listening party for a piece of work? We haven't, but tell us. So, you know, this is kind of, I think this is a This American Life tradition. This is like my take on the history. I used to work at Planet Money, which is a show that came straight out of This American Life. So we adopted the same structure of how we would, we call it editor story, but I don't mean editing in the sense of being in the software, cutting the tape. I mean, you know, structurally editing it as a narrative. We would sit as a group and listen to a story out loud and then once it's finished, you have a lightning round of feedback and people basically have about 60 seconds to kind of give their top line thoughts, what they loved, what they didn't understand, where their attention wandered. And as you're listening, in order to give that feedback, you're thinking, you know, where am I really gripped? What's the great tape? What's lagging? Where am I losing attention? At what point did I reach for my phone or did I not reach for my phone? Um, was it 22 minutes that felt like 38 minutes or was it 22 minutes that felt like 12 minutes because it was just zipping along so beautifully? And after everyone's given their feedback in about 60 seconds each, this kind of magic thing happens because you've all listened at the same time. Even as a reporter, if it's your piece, you hear it differently when it's played out loud. You've probably experienced this already. When you play something out loud for someone and you're forced to listen to your own voice and you can get past the torture of that, you can hear your own piece differently and you can see your own mistakes differently. And this kind of magic happens where this consensus emerges about what the piece needs and 
solutions get suggested. It's, it's the greatest gift. They're invested in helping you make the piece better. This is something we've continued at days like these. We used to do it at 7am in a shorter kind of way for a daily podcast as well. And it's your best chance to kind of edit the work, you know. A good piece of work is written once. A great piece of work is written five times in drafting. And your relationship, particularly with narrative audio, it's just really time-consuming. Um, you've got to fall in love with the story in order to pitch it to other people and believe in it. And then, you know, you're spurred by your excitement and your great tape. And then you get to the point of rewriting it the second or the third time or fixing something and you're totally sick to death of it. And usually that means you've just done the right amount of work because by the time it's ready to go out the door, you never want to hear it again. And the listening parties are kind of the only, to my mind, the best way to get great feedback on how to do it. So if you can get a room of people, this is a long way of giving my top tip. Sorry, guys. The top tip is get a room of smart people to sit with you and tell you what they liked and what they didn't like. And getting those people around you, if you um, can, as soon as possible, once you've got a draft, is the best. Tip two, when you have a really amazing piece of tape, like, you know, and like, what do I, I'm, what do I mean when I'm talking about an amazing piece of tape? Usually for me, that's like something happens on the tape. Like someone reaches a realisation, they grapple with an idea verbally, something like um, what I'm saying is, no, really what I mean is like, it wasn't quite like this, but what I meant, like, you know, that can drag on. but. If someone's thinking out loud for you, that's a gift because something's happening. They're visualising their thought process for you. That, that bit of tape can feel like you should hold that tape, you know, till like later in your story. It's your special thing. You should keep it till right at the end. But the more I think about it and the more I go on, and it's great advice I've heard over the years, the more you want that tape to be almost as close to the front of the story as possible because you can bury it at a 23-minute mark, but if you've lost some of your listeners by then, it may as well not be there. So put it in the right place in the narrative structure to kind of grab your audience. Consider putting it right at the beginning, you know. Um, don't hold it. Don't hold great tape. That was Elizabeth Kulast, host of Days Like These. The Masterclass is produced by Andy Hazel and myself and edited by Andy Hazel. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne.